Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lamumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. Hi, welcome to the Mississippi Book Festival virtual this year. This is our young adult panel. My name is Sammy Thomason-Fike. I'm the Youth Services Specialist at the Lithay at Oxford Public Library in Oxford, Mississippi. Um, And I'm super excited to be here because we're all Mississippi people today. Yay! Yay! (laughs) Um, So I'm going to go ahead and introduce everyone, and then we will go ahead and get started with questions. Uh, So I'm going to go in the order that I see y'all. So uh, Angie Thomas was born and raised in Silver Dice in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, She's a former teen rapper whose greatest accomplishment was an article about her in Write On Magazine. She holds a BFA in creative writing from Belhaven University and an unofficial degree in hip-hop. She can still rap if needed. Andy is an inaugural winner of the Walter Dean Myers Grant in 2015, awarded by We Need Diverse Books. Her debut novel, The Hate You Give, started as a senior project in college. It was later acquired by the Balzer Plus Spray imprint of HarperCollins Publishers in a 13 publisher auction and debuted at number one in the New York Times bestseller list, winning the ALA, ALA's William C. Morris debut award and the Boston Globe Horn Book Award, the Waterstones Children Book Prize, and a Dutch prize that I can't pronounce at all, but that's so awesome. Uh, you give. I can't either. You're good. Okay, good. <laughs> I like look, have looked through these bios and then like, I just saw that word and I was like, that's not going to happen. Um, the Hate You Give was adapted into a critically acclaimed film from Fox 2000 starring Amanda Stenberg and directed by George Tillman. Uh, Andy's second novel, On the Come Up, is a number one New York Times bestseller as well, and the film is in development with Paramount Pictures with Andy acting as producer. In 2021, Angie wrote Concrete Rose, a prequel to The Hate You Give, focused on 17-year-old Maverick Carter that debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Yay, Angie! Angie, wave to the people. Say hello. <laughs> Hi. Okay, next, uh, we're going to go to Heather. I see her next. Um, Heather Truitt is an MFA candidate in poetry at the University of Memphis and serves as the development director for the Pinch Literary Journal. She is hashtag actually autistic and passionate about bringing more neurodiversity urgent voices to the publishing table. Heather was born in Kentucky, sharing a hometown with Loretta Lynn and grew up in South Carolina. She moved from there to Alabama and now resides in Mississippi with her husband, teenage sons, and three cats. She works as a copywriter and as a writing consultant for the university students. Kiss and Repeat is her debut novel. Yay, Heather! Wave to the people! Great. All right, and then we will finish with Jennifer. Um, Jennifer Moffat is the author of the novel Those Who Pray, which is a 2021 Mississippi Institute of Arts and Letters Youth Literature nominee, and a forthcoming novel coming in 2022, published by Simon & Schuster. After working in New York for several animated television series, which included Arthur and Disney's Doug, she received an MA in creative writing from the University of Mississippi and wrote for regional publications, including the Jackson Free Press. Her short stories and poems have appeared in various literary journals, including New Orleans Review and Descant, where she is an associate fiction editor. She teaches creative writing at the Mississippi Gulf Coast Community College, where she is their 2021 Mississippi Humanities Council Instructor of the Year. And that is everyone's bios, and that is the most you will hear from me. Um, <laughs> so let's go ahead. I would love for y'all just to give a quick elevator pitch of the books that we're talking about at Angie, if you want to start. 
Yeah, sure. Um, first off, thank you all so much for having me. It's always an honor to do, to do the Mississippi Book Festival. Um, my third novel, Concrete Rose, is a prequel to The Hate You Give, and it follows 17-year-old Maverick, who everyone knows from The Hate You Give as being Star's dad. But in Concrete Rose, he's just a kid who is the son of a former drug legend who's now incarcerated, and he watches his mom work several jobs in order to keep the family afloat. And he and he finds out unexpectedly that he's a father and it turns his life completely upside down. But Maverick has to decide for himself what it means to be a man and what manhood looks like. So that's Concrete Rose and short. <laughs> yeah, that sums it up. Heather, you want to go next? So um, in Kiss and Repeat, the main character, Stephen Lucky, is not so lucky in love. And he blames a lot of his issues on the tics that come from his Tourette syndrome. And so when he discovers at a party that kissing a girl makes his tick stop, his best friend suggests they do a big experiment where he kisses all the girls to see if they can calm his ticks. But along the way, he doesn't like how it feels to treat girls that way. And he begins to really question um, masculinity and relationships and how much of his original issues were his Tourette's to begin with. All right. And Jennifer. Hey, um, Those Who Pray is a, a book about a shy college freshman, and she's from a fictional town on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, and she goes, um, she chooses Boston to go to college and finds herself kind of lonely and not, um, you know, difficult to make friends. And so when she finally falls in with a group um, and, you know, has people to hang out with, she doesn't realize that she's actually being seduced into a campus cult. So by the time she does realize she is very far away from home and isolated. So it's definitely, a, um, it's a thriller genre. <laughs> okay. Awesome. All right. Uh, so my first question is for everyone, uh, as Mississippi residents, how does living here influence the stories you tell? Um, and why don't we start with Jennifer? Okay. So I have lived on the Gulf Coast for almost 15 years. And um, when I was writing this book, I needed to think of a hometown that um, someone would really miss, that they would be homesick um, when they move away. And um, the Gulf Coast is so unique. It's, it's, it's a close-knit community. We moved here right after Katrina. And so we really saw um, how close knit it is and people coming together to kind of help each other build back. And I know Louisiana is going through this right now too. And it's, um, and went through it with Katrina. Um, and so it's not just that though, it's kind of like a unique place in that like even high school homecoming has a Mardi Gras parade and you can catch hundreds of beads. And then, you know, if you wanted to, you could kayak down the street to the islands. It's just like a really kind of cool, unique um kind of place that I think that the main character would really miss. So it was really a no-brainer to pick this place for her. Okay, Heather, you want to go next? Sure. I have lived in so many Southern towns at this point that I think it would be really hard to step outside of a Southern town and write it authentically. Like, I haven't had that experience. And though this one is set in a small town in Alabama that I made up, but is actually a town I lived in, the new book is set right below Memphis in uh, Mississippi. And it, it just feels authentic to write the location that you see every day and the people that you're with every day. Okay, Angie. 
Yeah, you know, Mississippi is an interesting, fascinating place from a writer's perspective. There's so many layers and so much complexity to this state. And, you know, and as a Black woman, those complexities are even deeper to a degree. So I, whenever I'm writing my books, I, well, in these three books I've done so far, um, there's no city or state mentioned, but Mississippi has a strong influence on them. Specifically, the neighborhood where I grew up in Jackson influences the neighborhood of Garden Heights in all three of my novels. Um, And the people in that neighborhood influence the people in the neighborhood in the books. So I, I really more so focus on the people and the complexities of the people, because I think one thing about Mississippi is we get a bad rap and it's rightfully so at times, but also <laughs> in that people make assumptions about the people who live here, the citizens, my neighbors, you know, my friends, my family. And if nothing else, when I'm writing characters, I think about the real people here in Mississippi and how I'd like to reflect them and show that they're more than the stereotype or the assumption that um, people make about them. And and I try to show real human beings with um, a multitude of emotions and thoughts and feelings and dreams and hopes, because that's what resides here. And so often people don't recognize that. I think that's beautifully put. Mississippi does get a bad rap and some of it is a little deserved, but you can't blame <laughs> the people that live here. It's not all on us. Okay, uh, so my next question is for Jennifer and Angie. Uh, You both wrote novels set in the 1990s, which I've been told is now historical fiction, which seems crazy to me. Um, What are some of the challenges with this and why did you choose this time period? The challenge was for me, um, the research part. I was a kid in the 90s. So the stuff that I was writing about, I was not experiencing in the 90s. Um, and then to just taking out the technology, like my characters can't text one another or mm-hmm. hop on a phone or get a lift or something like that. You know, they have to use these ancient things called pay phones <laughs> and, you know, email even isn't a thing and social media isn't a thing. And to a degree, that was a relief. Um, it was nice to kind of disconnect from it all and get into this world where that stuff doesn't exist, where my characters don't have a phone glued to their hand. But on the other hand, it meant, okay. What was it like back then? But the wonderful thing is that so much of growing up, it doesn't matter what decade you're in, there are some things that still remain the same. So yeah, Maverick can't use a cell phone. He has a beeper that he's very proud of. And there's some kind of pride that comes to him for having that beeper, just like a young person nowadays would be proud when they get their first cell phone on their own. You know, So it's about tapping into the things that even though you know, the technology is different. There's still so many um, aspects that are the same. It's about tapping into that. But the research was definitely the hardest part. So I have to credit hip hop because rappers in the 90s talked about the types of cars people were driving and the music and this, this and this. And that helped me to set the scene. But yeah, it, 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 the research was the hard part and not having technology and social media to rely on. I agree with that too. Um, my biggest issue was the phone situation. Um, I am a Gen X, you know, person, but my editor is a millennial. And so she kept asking me now, would the phone be a landline or would it be, would it have caller ID? And I noticed in concrete Rose, like someone kept getting confused as to like forgetting some, why someone has caller ID, like it was a new thing. And, um, 
And so we had, I had to, even though I was um, a teen during that time, or I guess I was a little bit older than a teen, uh, I still had to uh, go back because I couldn't remember. And 94 in particular was a time when technology was really changing. And so there were a few years in there where, you know, no one had a cell phone and then the next year everyone did, you know, it wasn't an iPhone, but, um, and then the same with laptops, like you really didn't see a lot of people with laptops then the internet existed, but not in the same way. And so um, that was a challenge. But one of the reasons I chose the 90s was because campus cults, when I was researching them, um, the real life ones, they were like everywhere in the 90s. And so my assumption when I first started researching this book um, was that, well, that makes sense. And it makes it more plausible that she would fall into a cult and not realize um, what she's getting into because she couldn't just Google it or ask someone on social media. But in the past couple of years, I feel like I had a misconception of that because it almost feels like um, social media and Google and things have almost made it easier to hide what's true. Um, and so, you know, it's one of those things when I first started researching the book, I thought, oh, well, you know, cults couldn't exist now, but we all know that they do because, you know, People just look at Facebook and say, oh, I'll treat COVID with the horse deworming paste. And that's true. And, you know, whereas, <laughs> you know, they're not really seeking what's true. But what I realized is that that's exactly what cults do. They rely on people to believe whatever the people closest to them um, believe. And so if that's in their Facebook group or that's in their immediate friend group, then that's just what they're going to believe and they're not going to question it. And so it's been a really interesting, um, thing to realize later on after the book came out and I had finished researching it. Yeah. I like, it's something you don't think about when you're writing, but like the nineties, we did not have cell phones and it does like hugely affect the plot of everything that you're writing. It Um, does. And it's something that like, kids today never thought about and I feel weird saying that yeah Um, okay so my next question is for Heather Uh, Heather can you talk about your experience as a neurodivergent author writing a neurodivergent main character uh sure yeah so although my neurodivergences don't match up with Stevens so I still did a ton of research and talking to people um my oldest son does have Tourette's but when I was drafting this he was like nine (laughs) like they're I wasn't talking to him about what it was like to kiss a girl. So I did have an adult male with Tourette's who I talked to about his dating experiences in high school. And there's a lot of pressure to get representation right from the outside. But also for me, having read really bad autistic rep, there was pressure from myself to make sure I wasn't stepping onto somebody else's territory and making a mess of it. Um, So we did have sensitivity readers and we did all that because being neurodivergent doesn't absolve me of responsibility for getting someone else's neurodivergence correct. Um, But on the parts that are the same, because Tourette's and autism do overlap way more than I think most people know, it was interesting to talk to editors and be like, nope, that is that is exactly how we think. So how do I communicate this so that it's clear on the page that this is how he's thinking and it's understandable to the reader who is most likely not neurodivergent. And that was way harder than I thought it would be to, I have to ask somebody, sometimes I'll ask a friend, so what do non 
neurodivergent teenagers talk about in a group? Like, how do I write that? (laughs) So it was fun, though. Hard, a challenge, but fun. I think you did a really great job. Um, It reads very authentically, uh, not from my perspective, but I did have an autistic friend read it who said it pretty much nailed the thought process. Um, So my next question is for Angie and Heather. Uh, You both wrote thoughtful male teen protagonists who deal with the challenges of toxic masculinity and societal expectations. Did you do any specific research on this and why do you think this perspective is important? Yeah, um, I did. I honestly do research with every book I write because even though I share identities with Star and Brie, there are still things that they experience that I don't because Um, you know, the Black woman experience is not all the same. (laughs) So I did research even with them. But with Maverick, I definitely had to do some. Um, I believe that if you're going to write a character unlike yourself, the least you could do out of respect for the people that do see themselves in that character is research. So I talked to Black boys and Black men. I listened to them. I read books by Black men, read books about Black boys. Um, and had the conversations and and I'm thankful for it. I think the book is better for it. Um, because again, if you're gonna write about someone unlike yourself, do the work, but also be willing to hear the criticism, be willing to be wrong. Um, you have to put your pride aside and say, hey, okay, I'm taking a space at this table. Let me at least humble myself enough to say, I don't know everything. Let me listen to someone who has a better perspective on it. So um, I, that for me was the biggest research. Um, and, and then too, just thinking about the character and thinking about the conversations I've had with people about Maverick over the years, that helped a lot as well. Um, I think, you know, it kind of made it easier for me because this was a character I'd already established and so many people already knew him and I knew him pretty well. So it made it easier to jump into his psyche, but yeah, research was talking to black boys and black men and listening and reading about black boys and black men. Uh, I would say a lot of the same, just I read a lot of books by men and uh, especially The World's Strongest Librarian is a memoir from a man who has Tourette syndrome and became a librarian because he had a lot of vocal tics and that was a challenge for him to be quiet in the library. I thought that was fun. But um, also I live with teenage boys. So as I was revising this, a lot of that went into it that my boys aren't what often gets stereotyped as the teenage male, like they're not partiers and the way they've treated girls has been very respectful. And they talk like when both of my kids had their first kisses, I knew like they came home and talked to me about it. And I wanted to put some of that on the page that boys aren't all boobs and sex. And though that's in there and um, so I, I wanted to, let my son see some of themselves on the page. And I think what you both nailed is like, I'm at that point in my life where I like, yes, I'm a very strong feminist and I literally only want to read books about girls. And so I'm like, okay, fine. I'll read this book about a teen boy, which is usually not my favorite category. Um, But I felt so empathetic to them. I was like, these are me of my brothers. Like these are real people who are going through like, you know, we talk a lot about what women face every day, but like what teenage boys face with toxic masculinity is so horrible. Um, And I don't know if enough people are like writing about it. So thank you both for handling it so beautifully. So my next question is for Jennifer. Uh, Jennifer, you've had a lot of experience working in television. How does writing for television differ from writing a novel? 
Um, well, and, and the way that it's different, so like, I guess it's, you know, the kind of obvious ways with the formatting and, you know, you're writing a story about a character you didn't create that already has a life and you're sort of squeezing in a small period of time, um, you know, within that character's life. And so um, in, the, in those ways, it's different, but uh, in a lot of ways, it, it sort of prepares you to write a novel and that um, you learn how to really move a story forward with dialogue um, because with scripts, you know, that's how it's happening. And, and I, you know, I find myself drawn to books that do the same thing. And then also, you know, every, the character has to have a, an arc and, you know, you learn to cut the things that aren't moving things forward because you're, you know, you're really on a tight timeline um, with a script. And so I think it, it kind of helps to um, make you a better novel writer. Um, and so in your bio, it said you worked on uh, Arthur and Doug. Are there any other shows you want to tell us you worked on? Um, no. And I had different jobs with both places. With Doug, my boss was the creator of Doug, Jim Jenkins, nicest dude ever. Um, and that was one of the most fun jobs I've ever had in my life. And I still keep up with a lot of the people that I worked with way many years ago. <laughs> and then um, with Arthur, I actually had the opportunity to write an episode. And so I'm very proud of that. My kids are teens now, but for a while they were very proud of that too. So, um, <laughs> uh, so anyway, I learned sort of every aspect. And, and one of the things is that just like with books, you know, there's so many different hands that shape a book and make it better by the end of it. I had no idea until I went through the process for the first time. And it's the same with the script, you know, they're, they're head writers, they're producers, they're it's the creator that's going to have notes. And so um, I learned so much about how that works and how being open to that can make such a better product as far as a book or a script. Awesome. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and ask this one for everyone. Uh, you all have degrees that focus on some type of creative writing. How has that informed your writing style and how valuable has your learning experience been? Um, so I'm actually in my degree program right now. I'm doing an MFA in poetry, but I still get to take fiction classes when I want to and dabble in that as well. Um, it's fun. You get feedback and there's deadlines and accountability, which is something that I, I think most writers struggle with. Like, I like knowing that if I don't write this, then I will have an F and I do not like having an F. So the accountability and getting so many other voices and I have really amazing professors at the University of Memphis's MFA program that I get to work with every day. It's just, it's awesome. I wish all writers could have the option. I know it's a privilege to even be able to do that. I'm like, here goes. <laughs> I, I'll go, no problem. Okay. Um, you know, I loved my experience at Bellhaven and I'm thankful for it. Um, but I do want to put it out there that, you know, in order to be a writer, you don't have to go to a college and study writing. To be a writer, you really literally just have to write. Like, that's it. And I think one of the best teachers of writing is actually books. Um, read the kinds of things you want to write, read the kinds of things you don't think you can write, read them all, you know? And mm -hmm. I think I've learned more from books, no offense to Bellhaven, than I had <laughs> than I learned in um, my creative writing program. The main thing my creative writing program taught me was discipline. Um, mm -hmm. You know, having 
um, having to turn assignments in within a certain amount of time um, that prepared me for deadlines now. Um, having to come up with a new story every two weeks or something like that, that prepared me for writing multiple things at once, something like that, you know? So I'm, I'm appreciative for that stuff that it taught me, but as far as, you know, the, the mechanics of writing and the skill of it, I feel like books taught me more. Um, and, and, and I want, I want all writers out there to know that, you know? Um, that, you know, you can, you can definitely, you know, get in a, a BFA, MFA, whatever it may be. And that's awesome. You know what I'm saying? But also if you don't, it's okay too. Um, I have a friend right now. Um, he wrote a book several years ago and TikTok just made it super popular. It has been number one on the New York Times bestseller paperback list now for the whole year. And that's Adam Silvera and his book, They Both Die at the End. And Adam only has a high school diploma. So never, you know, it, it, I say, if you feel like that would be great for you, pursue it. But at the same time, know that it's not necessary to be a writer. The main thing is learn to write and to write, period. So thank you, Bellhaven. But I could have learned that without having student loans. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to agree with with that, I actually, um, when I was living in New York and working in children's television, I decided I wanted to go back to school. And that's what led me to the University of Mississippi. At the time, they didn't have an MFA program. So I did the, the MA in creative writing and English. And honestly, the thing that it taught me the most was how to write a good sentence um, you know, how to, how to read like a writer, how to read a story and look at the POV or look at, um, you know, how dialogue works or those things. I didn't really know how to do that as much before. And those things were helpful. Um, but I've been teaching in Mississippi community college systems for, I don't want to say how many years, but many, many years. And I run across stories and assignments when I, you know, I'm grading and they will literally like take my breath away. And the student never knew. No one ever told them in high school. No one ever said, Hey, you should, you should think about this. And so I agree with Angie as well. I, I would never tell a student to be a writer. You need to go um, get a master's. Uh, and in fact, if something has a really strong voice to me, that's something that you almost can't learn in an MFA program. Like you can't, teach someone how to have their own voice. They just do. And you can, you can help with the other. And so I just, um, because of the job I've had for years, it's my dream job. I get to run across those stories and I get so excited to tell um, students. And I've had some um, write me later, you know, they'll get a story published or something and they just have never had anyone, you know, that, that noticed, Hey, you know, this is, you could send this out. Um, and so I agree. I think reading a lot and and just not stopping, you know, just the act of like, you know, along the way, even after publishing a book, there are always going to be um, things that come up, obstacles and disappointments and just pushing through and staying at it. Or, or those are the things that I emphasize when I teach creative writing to community college students. So I'm definitely of that thought. Uh, you know, you don't have to get a master's to publish a book. 
Y'all may have talked me out of going back to school. It's probably <laughs> the best. Um, Jennifer, oh, you I think have my... uh-uh, no, it's a, I think it, it's whatever's best for everybody. Yeah. You know, yeah. every individual, yeah. everybody is different. I think, you know, there was a time where I wanted to go back and get my mm-hmm. MFA, but then I was like, do I really want to do homework again? And I mean, you know, it's, that's uh-huh. just me. I think that the MFA is still very beneficial like mm-hmm. super beneficial. So definitely not knocking it. <laughs> and it, it's according to what you want to do. I was going to tell Jennifer, you have the job I want right now. Like my goal is to be teaching in two-year schools. I went to two-year schools first and I loved my professors. And I love that those students, just because they didn't end up at whatever big university, mm-hmm. deserve just as good a professor and just as good of a creative writing and English experience, even if they are going on to nursing or whatever their plan is. And so you need a degree to do that, though. They're not hiring me because I published a YA romance novel. So. <laughs> Yeah, I look, I've been doing this a long time. So it was definitely before I was publishing. I was actually writing for the Jackson Free Press and doing a lot of book reviews um, and just almost lucked into a job as an instructor. Not sure if I would love it. And honestly, um, you know, you could put me in any community college classroom in Mississippi and I'm going to walk out of there feeling so good about where we are and the world. Whereas if I focus on, you know, what's going on in the news and how everything, you know, is falling apart. Um, it's just, these students can do anything. They they're working full time. They're taking a full load. They're helping their families. They're just, it, it is such an honor to get to teach in the classroom. And I, it, it inspires me every day. It really does. I'm, I know it sounds corny, but it really does. It helps, it helps me like have hope for, you know, where we're going. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I love all those answers. I'll reconsider. (laughs) We'll see what I end up with. So my next question is for Heather and Jennifer. Can you speak about your experience debuting during a pandemic? I know no one wants to answer this question, but everybody wants to know the answer. My heart goes out to both of you, (laughs) FYI. Like, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Go ahead. Well, I I was just going to say, honestly, to go on what I was saying before, um, I, I debuted in November, so it was a different, it's, you know, it's sort of the pandemic. It's like, we thought it was over and then it's not. And so in November, everyone was sort of hopeless in my TV group because a lot of books got pushed, um, a year or two ahead. A lot of books got pushed and then dropped. Um, and I was teaching full time, um, and my students, were freaking out because they were trying to do so much at the same time, like, um, you know, keep their jobs and check on their family and not make their family members sick. And so it was the only thing I could do to control the situation was to make sure that I didn't have students to fall off the map. And that distracted me from what was going on in publishing (laughs) because I couldn't control any of it. Um, And so by the time my book debuted, I really was just grateful that it ha- that it actually happened and was on a shelf and I got to see it at, um, you know, like Lemuria and um, past books. I went and signed for him and it, and it was just nice and quiet and, and it wasn't, um, I guess in the scheme of things, I felt blessed if that makes sense. Yeah, I had a 2021 date. So for the beginning of the pandemic, it was like, thank you for a 2021 yeah. date. I- it'll it'll all be over by then. 
and it wasn't. So, you know, virtual party happened when, you know, I for years had pictured, you know, what I would wear to my debut party. And then there's also the part of me that sees the pros to that because, yeah, I am autistic and socially awkward and don't always love crowds of people. So I got to do my uh, question and answer for my very first event totally on Zoom. And I couldn't see any of the people I was talking to, just the person I was in conversation with takes a lot of anxiety away. Mm -hmm. I I'm doing this right now wearing slippers. I mean, (laughs) there's, there's pluses to everything being virtual. Um, I've learned not to count on anything happening until I'm doing it. I've had managed one, one in-person event at friendly city books in Columbus. And it was so much fun. And then we'll see, we'll see what happens. Those are really positive answers. I'm really proud of y'all. <laughs> me too. And I would be a record like slippers are high-end fashion right now. For yeah. like, and hey, my debut cake, I didn't have to share it with anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Pieces of it frozen in my. <laughs> that is the way, the cake way. All right. Um. So Angie, Concrete Rose is a prequel of the hate you give, but definitely stands as a full story in its own. What inspired you to tell a Maverick story? My readers inspired me to um, tell Maverick's story. Maverick was one of the characters I was asked about the most and one of the most beloved from The Hate You Give, which surprised me because, you know, when you're talking about young adult literature, people rarely care about the parents. But I would do events, like even there at the Mississippi Book Festival, and people would tell me, oh, I love Maverick. I want to know more about Maverick. The moms would be like, I want to marry Maverick. The kids would be like, I wish my dad was like Maverick. And then the dads are looking at me angrily in the background. But, you know, um, (laughs) but he was he was a character that fascinated so many people. But also he was a character that there were so many people who thought, well, people like this don't really exist and the fact is Maverick isn't a unicorn Maverick is pretty normal I know men just like him who once did things they weren't supposed to do and turned their lives around I know black men specifically who you know who are active fathers despite what society says who who are there and who did things that they aren't proud of necessarily but they learned from it and now they're pillars of their community I know these guys and we don't see them nearly enough so I wanted to write Maverick, not so much, though, as a love letter to those men to thank them for who they are and what they represent, but to inspire the young boys who will see themselves in young Maverick so that then they can look at older Maverick and see what's possible for them. Um, That character was one of my favorites. And then the film um, only really expanded the love. Russell Hornsby's portrayal of Maverick was phenomenal. You know, I still think he should have gotten an award or, or, or two. But, um, yes, yes. But um, he he brought so much to that character and really brought that character to life in a way that I'm forever grateful for. Um, and just having conversations with him about Maverick while on set made me think of the character even differently and deeper. So between the readers wanting to know more about Maverick and Russell Hornsby inspiring me, it just felt right to tell his story. Um, and and it was it was a joy to write. I got to write about 1998 and 99 in 2020 when all hell was breaking loose. It was a great escape. So <laughs> thank you to my readers for inspiring me to do it. It's true. You never see parents in YA. I love Star's parents. They like, I don't know. I just like, I was like, 
19 or 20 when the hate you give came out and i was just like oh i really like them i feel like they would be friends with my parents like they're cool people and you never get to see cool adults in ya it's always like a dictator or a dead mom or whoever it's a nice change of pace uh, all right so this one is for everyone y'all can answer however you choose uh, what is the most valuable thing you've learned about writing for teens respect them <laughs> respect them they're human beings with thoughts and dreams and hopes and aspirations and if I'm going to write for them I need to respect them that means respect them where they are right now respect the music that they like respect the words that they use respect how they express themselves um, but also recognize too that they're intelligent they're smart they're capable of making good decisions um, they're capable of being leaders they're capable of being activists they're just capable period um, so respect them and listen to them and write for them and not at them Mm -hmm. um have conversations with them through your novel don't preach to them so um I've definitely learned that and I'm I think I'm a better person for it because I've learned so much from my readers they teach me more than I think I teach them it's helpful too to reconnect with who we were as teenagers uh I was writing YA when I decided to go back to school. It was like, what was it 18 year old Heather wanted to do before she got married and had two kids and felt overwhelmed by everything? Like, who was that person? And I listen to 90s music when I'm writing YA because that's when I was a teenager. So I love 1998 and 1999. Those were good years. Um, Yeah. And also, I think it's when we write for teenagers, it's important to realize that we write for teenagers and it can be so helpful when you get reviews to take the worst ones with a grain of salt because adults are adults and they read different and they expect different things. I get so much more from my friend's daughter running in at a scout meeting and being like, oh my God, I love your book. Then Goodreads. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, I am around teens 24 seven. I have two teenagers in the house and then I'm around them at work on campus. And, um, and I agree. They're just, they inspire me. Um, teens, I don't know if it's because I'm older now, but they just feel like they're so together and that they're making a difference. And, um, I really do feel inspired by them. And, um, the other thing is, is that the thing that I love most about writing for teens is that I get to go back to that starting point with a character. And to me, YA is about starting points. Um, and no matter what decisions you make or how sideways your life may go, you're still at your starting point. And so you have, you know, you have all kinds of, um, time ahead of you and, um, you know, you can be whatever you want. And I just love, I love writing for that phase of life. And can I just say all three of y'all wrote such beautifully authentic teen voices. Sometimes you're reading YA and you're like, a 30 year old woman write this but I'm like with it but like I really felt like your characters were teens and um I think that's something that like teens really respond to too is like Angie said they're not you're not talking down to them you're talking to them at your level okay um my teens tend to tell me I act like another teen so (laughs) I don't think they mean it as a compliment compliment. My my husband has told me I've been reliving my adolescence being back in school. He's like, you're just doing all that again. It's not a bad thing. Um, so what books would y'all recommend to aspiring writers? 
I, um, when I teach creative writing, I always recommend the book called Bird by Bird. It's by Anne Lamott. And there's a chapter in there called Shitty First Draft. Um, and can I say that? I don't know. Am I supposed to? <laughs> they can bleep it out if they need to. They're uh, editing. Um, anyway, I think it's so helpful for beginning writers to know that when you go to write, your first draft is not going to be perfect. And that's part of the process. It's okay. And that's one of those books that breaks it down like that. And it, to me, it makes writing a lot more accessible. And um, so I, I recommend it. As far as um, once someone is to the point where they want to write a novel and they're ready to like take on take that on, um, I recommend the Save the Cat um, by, I think it's Jessica Brody. Yeah. Um, because I am very much a pantser and it is teaching me how to loosely outline in a way that makes sense to me. So, and I think it's important, especially when you're on deadline <laughs> to know how to do that. I think, and for very beginning writing or for all genres, um, writing down the bones by Natalie Goldberg is one of my favorites. It, it has a very, spiritual take to it. Um, she's Buddhist and it has a lot about paying attention to detail and authenticity, and it can benefit you no matter what you write, even if you just want to be a really great journaler. Um, if you are more serious about wanting to write a novel, I do a different craft book. Like with every manuscript I write, it's one of the ways I keep myself on task. And I just did story genius Mm -hmm. And loved it and loved the way it, it talks about coming from your character, like the whole plot must come from the character. So I would recommend that one. And Save the Cat is actually the one I'm planning on doing next. I'm going to be that person that markets myself. Do um, it. I don't know if I could find it, but I have one called Find Your Voice, a guided journal for writing your truth. It's a book that came out last year or the year before that. It was pandemic. No, it was pandemic. Yeah. It was um, 2020. I have a copy. Yes, yes. Yes. So it is a guided journal for writing your truth. And though we marketed it for young people, it's for anybody who wants to write. Um, I walk you through my writing process from beginning to end. And it's also a workbook. So as I'm walking you through my process, you can follow along with your own ideas. And hopefully by the end of this, be ready to do a first draft of your own novel so I'm really proud of that book that workbook um, and I've gotten a lot of feedback from a lot of writers young and not so young who said that it has helped them so hey I get asked a lot what's my process well I wrote a whole book to detail my process check it out <laughs> I love it that would be so great for the classroom that's what yeah that's what we hoped for that's what we hoped for we had had plans for me to go around and do you know a tour where I go to schools even and to creative writing classes and English classes but corona yeah this heifer (laughs) 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 okay all right do y'all want to share any upcoming projects that you're working on or not it could be secret (laughs) first draft Finally, of uh, I know we're not exactly using own voices anymore, but I'm not even sure what else to call it. But I wanted to write about what it would have been like if I had been able to just know I was autistic in high school and have a different experience than I had. So I wrote that girl, but I wrote it present day and she's homeschooled and about to go back to about to go into the public school system. But she and her family know she's autistic and she has all the supports that are helpful And the point of the story isn't that she's autistic, but the like romance and dealing with her father's death and stuff. So it was probably the most fun thing I've ever written. And I'm really excited about it. 
Okay. Um, I am working on another, it's, I guess it's called Upper YA, but it's a college student who um, joins a historic preservation uh, group and goes to help restore a castle in rural France and gets there. I'm sort of staying in my lane, I guess, with the whole like travel abroad in Europe, but she gets there and, and things definitely take um, a deadly turn. So another YA thriller um, abroad. Angie, can you tell us anything? (laughs) I can, I can. Um, We are about to start filming on the come up, the movie for my second novel. Um, This is September right now. We start filming in October in Atlanta. I'm super excited about that. Um, Blackout, the collaboration book that I did with several other authors. We were going to have a panel there. Um, We're going to do it next year, though. Um, But it came out and we had an announcement where the Obamas are doing a film and TV show for that. So I'm super excited about that. Um, I am currently working on my fourth novel and it's middle grade. So I can't do the YA panel next year, middle grade. Um, it's about a 12-year-old girl who lives in Jackson who has some magical abilities. And that's all I can say at the moment. But I think people are going to really enjoy the fact that I give a magical explanation for the potholes in Jackson. I am so yes. excited for everybody to see what the explanation is. Why are there so many potholes in Jackson? I will explain it to you in this book in a magical way. So I'm super excited. I get to explore some of Jackson and some things I don't think people know about, like the fact that we have a volcano under the city. Really? So, yes, the, oh. there's a volcano under Jackson. It's extinct, but the opening is right below the Coliseum on the fairgrounds downtown. Wow. So like the opening is on under that big top. Like <laughs> that's, it's crazy. So I'm excited to um, to explore that in a bunch of other Jackson things in this book. So be on the lookout for that. Well, I lived in Jackson for four years, a couple streets away from that. And now I really <laughs> know about the volcano. Listen, there's like a line. I just, I showed it to my editor. There's a line where the main character, she's like, had she known that there's a volcano under Jackson, she wouldn't have gone to the fair every day for a whole week. Mm-hmm. Funnel cake yes. and all that. Though chicken and chicken on a stick may be worth volcanic yeah. eruption. So, <laughs> if you're from Jackson, you know that reference. <laughs> Shout out to Pins. Chicken yes. on a stick. <laughs> I've had chicken on a stick. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I say, we're from Mississippi. Good. We've all had chicken on a stick, yes. I hope. There's it's... literally a gas station in my town that's just called chicken on a stick. <laughs> that's amazing. I, I was so happy when I found out that Penn sells it not just at the fair. So, like, you can get it anytime. Chicken cool. on a stick. <laughs> all right. So, um, my final question for y'all is, do you have any upcoming books that you want to recommend or hype up for your friends, your fellow authors? Anything you're reading that you're excited about? This one. <laughs> yes, I read it yesterday. It's yes. so good. Fast Pitch by Nick Stone. She um that came out Tuesday of this week. So by the time y'all see this, I don't know, it will have been a little bit longer, but yeah, I highly recommend it. It's like a retelling of the Sandlot but with little girls so check it out yeah um i'm excited about ka reynolds uh is he at the end of the world with an autistic main character that will be out in 2022 uh she's written a couple other middle grade fantasies Mm -hmm. that are really fun so looking forward to it um i'm excited about there's a book called the falling girls it comes out in october by Haley krischer 
um, she wrote what happened to Allie Greenleaf um, or something. I'm sorry, something happened to Allie Greenleaf. Uh, and so I'm excited about that. It's coming out really soon. Yay. Okay. Well, I'm going to read all of these. I did just read That's kind of crazy. I love it. Um, so anyway, thank y'all so much for doing this. This thank was you. so much fun. Um, thank you to the Mississippi Book Festival for having us. I'm pretty confident that Angie will be back for her middle grade book, even if she's <laughs> not here with us in YA. Um, I want to thank An- Ellen Daniels, who's the director of the Mississippi Book Festival, for making this happen. Yay, Ellen. Um, so thank you all so much. We're so grateful. And we hope everyone is staying safe and getting vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Thank you. Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's literary lawn party.